Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Number one or two, I'm not sure what, what you know, things are, are shifting, so it might be, uh, you know, not as, not as high on the list um, as, as others at this point, but it's definitely up there, definitely top one or two, you know, and it's this idea of exclusivity um, and how we can claim that Jesus is the only way. Um, and <clears throat> as I thought about this, um, and, I, and I began to consider, consider this topic and this thought, which I am, um, I'm a preacher and I preach and that's what I do, which I am, um, I'm a preacher and I preach and that's what I do, um, but uh, for this, I, I don't know how preachery I'm going to be. I might have to put on, you know, you told you I'm a, you know, wrapping up a PhD now, pray for me. I got like four more chapters to write, keep praying so I can get this done. Um, I might be a little more teachy today, so I'm sorry if I'm not as preacherish as you would have hoped uh, this morning. But maybe there are some moments, I don't know, we'll see what happens. Uh, but let's uh, do, do this with me. I want you to open your Bibles with me and turn to... The Gospel of John, that's the fourth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. If you don't know what the New Testament is, that's all good. Use this wonderful resource called your neighbor who might know. Um, there's another resource, if your neighbor don't know, that you can use. Um, it's called Table of Contents. There's no shame. Turn there and find it. And if you don't want to use a Table of Contents, I believe our tech uh, folks here at Refuge are going to throw it up on the screen, I think so. so. But we're going to be looking at the Gospel of John. We're going to look at the first six verses, chapter 14 verse 1 through 6, John 14, 1 through 6. Look at the first six verses, chapter 14, verse 1 through 6. John 14, 1 through 6, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Here's what Jesus says. <clears throat> he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know, the way, you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for these words. Thank you for the truth contained in these words, even though this truth may cause some, some angst, frustration, concern, over what Christians think. Father, I pray that we would wholeheartedly embrace them, not because they're words of, of hate or divisiveness um, or alienation, but because they're words of life, because they're words of truth, because they're words of invitation. Father, be with us now as we look to your word. God, encourage us, strengthen us today by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. How can we say that Jesus is the only way. As we think about this, and, and we kind of unpack this a little bit, I really, my prayer for us, uh, apart from the person of Christ, my life trajectory would not be the same were it not for the person of Jesus. I don't come from a Christian background. I was not brought to Christ through faithful, loving Christian parents, although if you have faithful, loving Christian parents, that is not something to be ashamed of or to, to look down on. That's something to praise God for. Um, but that just happens not to be my testimony. I don't come uh, from a background where I regularly heard the gospel and was exposed to Jesus. God sovereignly got a hold of my life and heart under a tree in downtown Detroit after football practice as a high school student. 
and he has not turned it loose since. And so for a long time, I personally have been trying to do the same thing that the Apostle Paul talks about in Philippians 3, which is I've been trying to apprehend that which has apprehended me. And that's the person of Jesus Christ. And so it's hard sometimes when someone would challenge the, the, the life that you've experienced um, in Christ. It can be difficult to not be defensive and not be frustrated and not just write a person off. But I want us to be sensitive and to lean in to this question. Why would people be offended at this idea that Jesus says, I'm the only way to God? I'm going to tell you why they might be offended and why they're concerned. It's not just because they necessarily hate Jesus. They might, some people do, but it might not be that at all. It might be that they're concerned for the 1.8 billion Muslims in the world. 1.8 billion Muslims in the world. It could be that they're concerned about the, they're concerned about the 1.35 billion Hindus in the world. Could be that they're concerned about the 500 million atheists and agnostics in the world. Probably most pertinent to them, though, which could be those things, could be their brother, their sister, their mother, their spouse, their friend, or even themselves, who does not accept the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so to hear that that many people that that person that they love might be completely alienated from God because they don't accept the testimony of one man can for so many seem too much to bear. And so as we think about it, as we, as we wrestle through this question of is Jesus the only way, I want us to do it from a posture of humility and a posture of understanding. Understanding not only the words of Jesus, but the posture of Jesus. If we're going to walk with Christ, if we're going to understand Jesus, it is never enough to just take his words because we see in the scripture that people can just take the words of God and they can use them to bludgeon people, to abuse them, and to even be harsh and profoundly ungodly. If you don't believe me, log into Facebook, right? People do this every day. So we can't only take the words of Jesus, but we have to take the posture of Jesus. And the posture of Jesus is always a posture of humility, always a posture of gentleness, and always a posture of welcome. And so as we begin to think about this, I begin to, and, and as I begin to think about this question, how can I say that Jesus is the only way? How can I say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? I immediately, as I saw, looked on the screen there and saw that the youth are uh, going on a retreat. I had flashbacks um, to my years. I was a youth pastor for eight years. Um, and it was one of the greatest joys of my life. It wasn't the easiest thing I've ever done, but definitely one of the greatest joys of my life. I'm grateful for it that I'm still like reaping the harvest um, of uh, just encouragement and seeing the faith of some of those same youth that had the opportunity to mentor and to disciple over those years, still seeing their faith grow. So take heart, youth leaders, wherever you are. I don't know who it is, but just be encouraged. Hang in there. It's, it's like it really does. The Lord does bear fruit. Um, but I thought about it. I used to take them on domestic mission trips around the United States. It used to be a lot of fun. We partnered uh, with World Changers, which was the uh, student uh, missions arm of the SBC. And we would go, and uh, we would go across the country. And it was a lot, loads of fun. And we would go, and we would support um, at-risk communities, uh, churches. A lot of times we support churches that would not otherwise have the money for renovations and things like that. It was a wonderful ministry. Um, and one year, we went over to San Francisco. Now, if you don't know anything, the most for sure. Um, and so while we were there, um, you know, I'm, I'm old school. 
Um, you know, I, I was led to faith by a street preaching friend of mine in high school. And so I didn't, again, I didn't come to faith like in a traditional way. I had a buddy who chased me around with a King James Bible this thick every, every day. And that's how I came to faith. Um, and so I'm old school. I don't mind just witnessing. I don't mind just, you know, I even had back in the day some chick tracks. If you know what that is, you, you save, save. Chick tracks. Like, <laughs> know what a chick track is, you know. The, those things were the most terrifying things to ever read. Like, anyway. But <laughs> this is the retrospect. It's like, wow. You know, but anyway. Um, you know, so I'm like, okay, guys, you know, we got together as a group. We're going to go out and we're going to share Jesus. What I quickly found when I was sharing Jesus in San Francisco um, was that people did not just want me walking up on them, telling them about Jesus. The truth could probably, a lot, a lot of that could probably be said today where we are. But what I noticed when I found out very quickly where I was in San Francisco was that people were very open to my story. They were very open to my background. They were very open to my testimony because one of the things, especially uh, in postmodern and metamodern culture, which we are kind of transcendent postmodernism, we're now in a period called metamodernism or post-postmodernism. Um, I'll unpack that later. Uh, but in a metamodern culture, um, we actually value narrative. We value story. And here's the beauty of it, especially in an individualistic culture like ours, we, we value the individual story. And so people were very open and willing to listen to my story. And I, as I already told you, I can't tell my story without Jesus. And people were really great and people really listened to me. Like people you wouldn't expect to listen and to give a Baptist Christian, a Baptist preacher a hearing. But they would often say this, well, that's good and thank you for sharing your story and your truth. Um, and it was cool as long as it stayed my story and my truth. The issue became when I said, it's not just my truth, it's the truth. And that's where the rub came in. That's the way I'm your truth and I'm your life. No one will care. But the issue of Christianity is that we claim to have the controlling, um, it may be controlling the word, maybe the overarching narrative that makes sense of all of the world. Those 7 billion people that I just listed, we actually make the claim that we have a story that can make sense of all of their various lives, experiences, cultures, religions, and expressions. And there are only a couple ways we can, we can grapple with that. Um, is either... Jesus, because Christians don't just pull this out of our neck, Jesus teaches this. Either Jesus is mind-numbingly arrogant and self-centered, or he's telling the truth. Those are the options when we start thinking about truth. And, and, and here's the reality. Uh, people, because they just assume that this is just the hubris of Jesus, or maybe depending on how we view the Bible and view the church, the hubris of Jesus' followers begin to push it away. But what the, this, is the, this is who I really in some ways want to appeal to and share with. Those of us, not only who are Christians, but those who are investigating and checking out Christianity. I, I want to appeal to us, and actually, um, from a, even from a secular perspective, ask that you not just dismiss the exclusive claims of Christ, that you at minimum take them serious and investigate. Because, listen, here, here's the reality. No, nobody really argues that Jesus, one, existed. Like or most scholars, and I'm talking atheists, agnostic, uh, pure academics. I'm not talking about scholars of faith now. They, they don't, no one argues that Jesus didn't exist. Nobody's making an argument that he didn't exist. Here's the other thing they're not arguing. They're not arguing that he was not the most impactful and decisive figure in the course of human history. 
that no one in the history of the world, particularly in the West, has done anything uh, that can, uh, can supersede the person of Christ. Uh, the, the historian uh, W.E.H. Leckie said this. He said the character of Jesus was, has not only been the highest pattern of virtue, but the strongest incentive in his practice and has exerted so deep an influence that it may be truly said that the simple record of three years of active life has done more to regenerate and to soften mankind than all the disquisitions of philosophers and all the exhortations of the moralists. Three years. And, and again, nobody is arguing that this is true. In fact, I was just reading an article, I'm, I'm blanking on a, a scholar's name now, but dude is actually an atheist and he was arguing that Europe needs to become Christian again. That was actually his argument. He was, he was like, listen, like, there, there is nothing undergirding European society. This guy's a whole atheist. And he's arguing because of the profundity of the teachings and person of work of Jesus of Nazareth. So here's what, here's my, what, I'm, what I'm putting out there. What I'm saying is that if this person has had this kind of impact on the course of human history, you don't even get hospitals without Jesus. Our morals and our ethics are rooted in Judeo-Christian values. All I'm suggesting is that the claims of this person must be taken seriously. Not only that, must these claims that Jesus makes about himself be investigated and taken seriously. I also think we have to point out, we have to understand and know that Christianity, we're, Christianity is often demonized as the only one out here making exclusive claims, um, which is just fundamentally not true. Every worldview makes exclusive claims. Some people like to say things like, well, all religions are basically fundamentally teaching the same thing. And that is very insulting to religious people because any Muslim that I know is gonna be real clear, yeah, there are some things where we got some concentric circles that overlap a little bit, but what the Quran is saying and what the Bible is saying are two different things. Any Hindu that is worth their salt, they're not gonna say that Islam and Hinduism are teaching the same things. They make exclusive claims. Any atheist that is serious about what they're saying cannot be put in a room with a pastor, an imam, and a Hindu priestess and say that they're saying the same thing. They're not. The, the truth of the matter is because all of these worldviews are making comp competing claims against reality, here's the truth. They can't all be right at the same time. Somebody has to be wrong. Either somebody's wrong or all of them are wrong, but they're not all right. And so when we start looking at Jesus and we start unpacking the claims of Christ, what I want to submit to you is that the claims of Jesus completely and holistically turn on the reality of the resurrection. The truth is, if this guy did everything he said he did and in space and in time got up from the grave as he said and is accurate about who he is as the fullest revelation of God, as the truth about the, who, our who the divine creator is, then this Jesus Christ is not arrogant in his assertion, but he's actually loving and inviting to call himself the way, the truth, and the life. In our culture, we can't... We, we can't have it both ways, uh, family. We can't, we can't have it both ways. We can't say uh, we want subjective truth. We want, to walk, you, we want the permission to walk in my own truth, and I want uh, the, you know, everybody get their own truth, and my floor is your ceiling, my ceiling is your floor, my nine is your six, and all that stuff. We can't do that on one hand, and check this out, especially for my generation, the millennials, and want justice at the same time. 
We can't want subjectivity when it comes to reality and also want justice. We are a generation that rightfully is calling for justice. 2020, the summer of 2020, saw the biggest protests since the civil rights movement against racial injustice, and it should have happened. Because there was no reason that a man by the name of George Floyd should have his neck nailed on for eight minutes and 46 seconds while being, while subdued and handcuffed. And the judge and the jury agreed. We wanted justice in that case. We didn't want Mr. Chauvin to show up and say, well, my truth is that I wanted to take a knee on somebody's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. If he had showed up with court with that defense and the judge had acquitted him, it would have been consequences and repercussions. Nobody wanted subjective truth in that case. People wanted the truth. The same thing that goes when we start to think about the Me Too movement. In the book, I know y'all have kind of been walking with this book, uh, Confronting Christianity by uh, Sister Rebecca uh, McLaughlin, who's a, who's a great scholar over in the UK. She brings up how a celebrity um, had congratulated and, and thanked the, the, uh, the women who began to came forward, rightfully so, because of the, the um, sexual harassment and, and the, the sexual exploitation at the hands of powerful men. They should have came forward and those guys need to be outed and there's probably more that need to be outed, even in the church, say amen somebody. We've had people who have gone about abusing young women and young men and things of this nature and using their power to get away with it. And they were congratulated for speaking. This celebrity said, thank you for speaking your truth. But here's what Rebecca said. She said, the truth of a sexual assault is undoubtedly personal. It is in an, in an important sense, your truth, it is personal. But if that truth is, also, is not also objective, it is a lie. The women who have spoken out are ultimately commended, not for telling their truth only, but for telling the truth. The truth is often hard to prove, which is why tragically, so many women do not speak out, fearing their testimony will not be believed against that of a more powerful man. But no one doubts that there is truth to be discovered here, truth that is both personal and objective. So yes, there is a personal element to embracing the person of Christ. You can only do that for yourself because here's the reality, and this is the chance that every one of the seven billion people in the world, including the ones that are in this room, are going to take when they, uh, whether, uh, when they answer the question what they will do with Jesus, we are all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Every human being is going to stand before God's judgment. And guess what? I, I tell folks this all the time. Your mama can't answer for you. Your daddy can't answer for you. Your spouse can't answer for you. Your best friend can't answer for you. You have to answer the question for yourself. What will you do with Jesus? And so there is a personal aspect to it. But what sets Christianity apart from so many other religions is that it's not just tied to a set of propositions. It is not just tied to a set of ideas, to a set of uh, theology. Even though we have theology, we have um, abstract reasoning, we have uh, mysticism, we have all those elements in Christianity. But Christianity is rooted in time, in space, and in a historic event called the resurrection. And the bottom line is that either, either Jesus is who he said he was or he's not. Either he got up from the grave or he didn't. Either he rose from the grave. I'm going to tell you why I like Christianity. You know, I, I ain't, um, you know, I got a lot of Muslim friends. I, I'm from Detroit. I was raised surrounded by Islam. My auntie is a Sunni Muslim. I ain't, I ain't knocking uh, Islam per se. But, you know, I, with the difference between Jesus and Muhammad is that Muhammad got his revelation in the cave. Jesus didn't get his revelation in the cave. Jesus was born in space and time. 
He was crucified in front of the entire city. And then he got up from the grave, checked this out, and appeared to 500 people at one time. Here's our two options now when it comes to this post-resurrection. And check this out. Even after the resurrection, he hung out for a month and a half. He rose from dead, hung out for a month and a half, and then appeared to 500 people at one time. Here's the options. Either everybody was lying or they had like a mass hallucination and the weed back in ancient Judea is better than we could ever imagine. I mean, what kind of, I mean, like uh, Apostle Snoop Dogg was there passing it around. 500 people. You, those are options here. What I love about Christianity and even historians, historians, I'm talking, again, I'm talking atheist historians. They'll say, this is what they'll say, after Jesus was crucified, we know he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Uh, we know that he was born in the year of Caesar Augustus, that after he resurrected, something happened to his disciples. Something happened that now, I'm going to say the resurrection. I'm going to take the word of God's word for it. But something happened. I, I, I'm, I'm just, let's just be honest, folks. Like, we got a lot of people in here. I see a lot of kids. Praise God for the babies. What, what, what would you really, like, what would really cause a group, a massive group of people with families, with businesses, with something to lose to go out and stake their life on a guy who got killed and wasn't even alive no more? and risk everything, give up their life over a guy who was no longer there. There's a lot of historic things that I can unpack there, but I want to actually encourage us to interact with some, some resources if we're like wrestling through what, what, who, how, how could this happen? One, one of the uh, great resources I love is uh, Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Uh, Lee Strobel uh, was an investigative reporter, uh, um, atheist agnostic, I can't remember if he was atheist or agnostic, uh, for the Chicago uh, Tribune, who set out to investigate the resurrection of Christ uh, to disprove it. That was his goal, actually, and end up finding a lot of evidence and converting. Another good resource um, is a, uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Norman Geisler. It's a great resource to check out because it really deals with these things. And, and so when people begin to push back um, on this idea of Christ being the way, the truth, the only one, I wanna encourage you, like, because of his stature in history, I don't, I, I'm not of the school that every claim that somebody make, you gotta go and investigate. You realize how boring my life would be if every time somebody made a claim on Facebook, I went and like fact checked it, I got, I just, I got other stuff to do, man. But I think this Jesus guy is worth that type of energy because of his impact in history and also because of his claim. If he's right, it is of eternal significance. If he's wrong, it means nothing, keep doing what you're doing. But if he's right, then that means he really does have the chief revelation of what God is like, and he can make sense of some things. So I really wanna zoom into the text real quickly. I'm not gonna keep you too long. Um, I think I've kinda said the gist of, kinda was, was animating a lot of my thought. And I kind of want to look at this test a little bit, a little more closely, because Jesus makes this statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I don't want us to think that Jesus is making this statement in a vacuum, because he's not. He's making this statement as he's sitting around at the Passover. He's just instituted the act of communion, and now he is getting ready to go to the cross. He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to the, well, now the 11, because Judas has already left out to go and do the betrayal. And he's sitting with them. And he is telling them, hey, look, I'm about, to, I'm about to check out. And I'm going to prepare a place. I'm going to do a thing. I'm going to prepare a place. And, and Thomas, 
he, doubting Thomas, who we'll see later in this, in this, uh, in this, uh, in, in the gospel, uh, doubting Thomas, who's a very concrete thinker, right? He, they tell him about the resurrection. Thomas says, he like us, I ain't going to believe unless I put my finger in his side and put my finger in his arm. It's like, man, you've seen this guy like walk on water and you still don't believe. It's all right. If you, that's, God has a lot of patience for the doubters. It's all right. God is patient. That's why I say we don't need to be defensive because God is patient. This is Thomas, who seems to be very concrete in his thought. He says, well, Lord, where are you going? I, I, I can't know the way because I don't know where you're going. Where, you're, where are you going and how do I follow? Jesus elevates Thomas's question. He says, Thomas, you know the way and you know where I'm going. I, I am the way. He elevates his question from the place of something very concrete, very natural, very embodied, and elevates it to the philosophical, to the existential, and to the ontological level. And people of God, I believe that this question, this is why I believe we have to be patient, we have to be gracious uh, with people as they wrestle through this, because all of humanity is trying to answer this question, what is the way? Every single one of us, are trying to answer this question, how do we know the way? Every religion is trying to make sense of ourselves and our existence in an absurd, broken, and cruel world. And so Buddhism gives a way, gives an answer, and says that the Eightfold Path is the way. Buddhism doesn't subscribe to a particular deity and says that the goal is to alleviate desire so that you can alleviate suffering. Because that's the goal. That's what we're all really trying to do, right? Alleviate suffering. Hinduism tells us to focus on four ways. There are four aims. Dharma, Kama, Artha, and Moksha, with Moksha being an ultimate goal of liberation from the absurdity and brokenness and pain of life. Islam tells us that the way is complete and utter submission to the will of Allah, as expressed through the words of the prophet Muhammad. Jesus is unique amongst these three major, most people in the world fall into these three major religions. Jesus is unique in that he doesn't prescribe a particular method, but he describes a person. And if we're gonna understand Jesus' this claim that I am the way, we have to first understand it personally. We have to first understand that all of these faiths and all of us are trying to understand that there's something within us that needs to be repaired, that needs to be fixed, that needs to be made right. I actually think when Jesus talks about himself as the way, that he is answering and seeking to answer this question, how do you fix the brokenness within yourself? How do you fix and address the brokenness within the world? And Jesus says, I, I'm, I'm actually the way to do it. I'm actually the path to repair. Well, the question is, what's wrong? What happened? This is what we say as Christians. And you've already kind of heard it in the service. That Christians, that, I'm sorry, not Christians, that human beings were created in perfect harmony, perfection, unity, and fellowship with God. What Jesus says is that human beings were actually made to be in fellowship, in relationship, check this out, with God and with one another. The theologian Karl Barth talks a lot about, about the I and thou of the image of God. It's a beautiful uh, treatise that he writes around this. But he talks about that God, that human beings are unique amongst all the other creatures of the sixth day because God calls to them, not only in relationship to himself, but calls to all of us in relationship to one another and corporately in relationship to his being so that they not only exist as I, but they exist as I 
and thou. They're the only creature that can recognize and understand God in this unique way. And so we all are called into perfection, into perfect, perfect, uh, perfect relationship with one another, perfect relationship with God, but something happens at the beginning. And that something is rebellion. Human beings decided, as we still do today, that there is a way that is better, that is different, that is uh, uh, more preferable than the way that God has laid out. And as a result, we introduce the brokenness within ourselves and within the world. And now this, this, I like this because I think it actually makes sense of some things. It makes sense of the longing that every human heart has for eternity. Not just Christian hearts, every human heart has a longing for eternity. Every human heart, this is what Ecclesiastes teaches us, that, that eternity is written on the hearts of humanity. You know, I was listening to a preacher and he was talking about how he had a friend who was an atheist, a good, good atheist friend, um, and they were at a funeral and this uh, atheist friend said at the funeral, well, you know, it's okay. I know they're in a better place. And they said, they just kind of looked at them and said, well, you're, what do you mean? You're an atheist. And this, this, it's not that the atheist was giving up on their atheism, but there's just something about the human heart that longs for the beyond. There's something within us that knows that this is not the end. One of my professors at uh, Covenant, uh, Jerome Bars, he called this, he wrote a whole book about it. He called it Echoes of Eden. There's something within a human heart and a human soul that still, almost in a sense, remembers, that still longs for, that still pines for that perfection, for that rightness. Here's what Jerome Bars uh, wrote in his book. He said, in the great arts, there are what I call echoes of Eden, memories of the true story of who we are and of the world as God originally created, beautiful and good and glorious. There are also memories of our rebellion and the fall of that sense of brokenness of our present human condition. This too, it, there is too a longing for all of these things to be made right. Within each and every one of our hearts, there's this longing. Now, in this case, Jerome was just talking about arts and literature. That's why certain stories resonate so deeply. This is why the writings of Shakespeare, the writings of these classic writers, these, these stories that we see that resonate on a massive level, it's because they get at something within our hearts. But this is the other thing I want to share about Jesus, saying that he is the way. As I said, if he's telling the truth, I don't, I don't think this is arrogance. Um, I think we start with this presupposition as moderns that Jesus wants to take something from us. One of the things that is valued above everything, and it started with existentialism, existential philosophers like Nietzsche and uh, uh, Kierkegaard and other guys, um, this idea of authenticity, the authentic self and things like that. Um, and those things, there, there's actually some value there. There are some good things um, that happen in some of that thought. Um, but with that, self-expression becomes the highest form of self-actualization. And we often, we, we see Jesus as stifling and putting, up, putting a, a, a wet blanket on our ability to express and self-actualize. But what if I, what if Jesus is actually not saying that he is trying to stifle our self-actualization? He's not trying to stifle us from being who we are, but he's actually trying to help us in our flourishing. I think the reason that we can reject Christ and we can reject what he is saying and reject his words is because we actually assume that he means us harm because we can't be who we think we ought to be. And 
when we start thinking about this idea of Jesus as being a stifler, I think, again, we have to look at what he says. He doesn't say, like, I came to make your life suck and suck worse than ever. It's like, he, that is not in the Bible, y'all. Like, it's really not. What he says is that, I came that you may have life and have it more abundantly. Think about it for a minute. If he really is, who he says he is, the fullest revelation of God, the fullest revelation of God's intention for us, the fullest revelation, uh, and, and check this out, the creator of the cosmos who upholds it, Hebrews 1 and 3, by the word of his power, then that means he knows what's best for it. And one of the things that we wrestle with more than ever is this idea that somebody outside of us knows what's best for us. Oh man, that is like the worst thing ever, right? That you're telling me that I don't know what is exactly best for me? Listen, I want to be clear that when we start talking about, you know, human beings and you know, listen, you, you have agency, you have choice, you have freedom, but at the same time, because of what we've experienced because of sin, there's the reality that God actually, as God, the creator, might know what's best. He might know what's better for you. You know, like, like a lot of people in the room, I have kids. It's glorious. Love having kids. I'm always amazed. Uh, my, my babies, uh, my boy is nine. Uh, Carlton and my girls, I have twin girls. They're both seven. And I'm just amazed at, one, I'm, I'm amazed at two things. I'm amazed that, wow, in seven years and nine years, they have learned quite a bit about the world. Um, it's really beautiful to see and to experience and to, to walk through and to see their fascination with the world. Um, but it's also funny how much, they, how much more than me they think they know. Like, you know, now look, I don't claim to know everything. I'm no genius here. Uh, but it is just funny. Like, you know, my kids, they're like, you know, they're, they're like reasoning with me. And it's, it is great. I like for them to, to talk with me and to reason with me. You know, but sometimes they just think they legit know more than I do. And I'm just like, oh, this is adorable. This is great. I'm glad you're using your brain cells. But no. <laughs> How about we not eat ice cream for dinner? It's a reason why we shouldn't ingest like 8,000 grams of sugar tonight. Yes, there's really great reasons for that. Don't have time to go into what it does on the cellular level, but just take my word for it. To them, they can't conceive. Like, Daddy's just being mean. He won't let us eat cake all day, making us eat vegetables. This is awful. We hate it here. We want our own house. <laughs> Look, the kid's like, hey, man, we want cake. <laughs> but here's the reality. While adorable and endearing, I would be a poor parent if I just let them give them, gave themselves over to their self-actualization at like nine and seven, right? And God is saying, listen, listen, you are made in my image. You are brilliant. You are, you are wonderful. You are geniuses. Look at what, what human beings have done with earth. But I'm still dad. I, and I'm not saying this to you to stifle you, to, 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 to throw away wet blanket on your self-actualization. Uh, self if you actually listen to me, because I made you, you will experience more of who you are and who you're called to be. So when Jesus says to us that he is the way, it's actually him loving us well. Think about it like this. You know, um, you know, Trey, you know, told you I'm in, trying to finish school. One day I'll do that. Um, but all of us have hopefully, you know, at least been to kindergarten, uh, you know, been to grade school, some point in our lives. Um, we all know what tests are. And tests are awful. They're the worst. Doesn't get better. No one likes to. I, I mean, maybe some, some nerdy people like it, but I didn't, didn't like it. Well, who wants a test? Like, I read the book, fine. I don't want to be tested over it. But tests would be a lot more enjoyable if 
You knew the test, like, hey, the test is coming on this day. Here's the answer key, huh? What if y'all had the answer key on the test? And you ain't even got to memorize it. You can just have it and show them to take tests. How much more enjoyable and non-threatening would tests be if the teacher just gave us the answer key? I mean, is it even a test at that point? I don't know. It's just copy and paste. It's great. It's marvelous. It's like the best thing ever. I'm going to send this to some of my teacher friends. Give it out as a recommendation. But do y'all realize this is exactly what God does? People accuse God of being unjust for saying that he is the way, the truth, and the life. It isn't like he kept that a secret. Do y'all see what I'm getting at? It isn't like he's the way, the truth, and the life and didn't tell anybody. That would be hateful. That would be mean. That would be damning to people unnecessarily. But that is not what God does. God says, listen, I'm Jesus. I, I want to get so close to you that I'm going to show up on earth. Like, I'm going to take a break from doing the heaven and celestial glory and worship of angel thing. Take a break from that from 33 years and come and put on a body of flesh and live with you and tell you how to get to me. That doesn't sound like a hateful, mean, vengeful God to me. That sounds like a profoundly loving God to me. And then he says, guess what? The test is on judgment day. But guess what? I'm the answer key. You show up and on the judgment day, all you got to say is one word. Jesus. I mean, now listen, listen, now I'm preaching. I'm preaching now. I'm trying to tell you. So that means y'all got to talk back because I'm preaching now. Like all you got to do is show up on judgment day and say, Jesus. That's all you got to say. You, don't, you ain't got to show up with all the answers. You ain't got to show up. Check this out. You ain't got to show up with all the answers checked off right. You really only need a one answer right. And it's Jesus. And I gave you the answer. And guess what? The answer will be sitting on the throne judging you. Y'all, the test is fixed. This is, be this is, better, this is better than Tom Brady's deflated footballs. <laughs> this is... This is, God is saying, listen, it, it's fixed. I get, I'm the way, I'm telling you. This is when we start thinking about the other side of the coin. Well, what about the people? This is why we proclaim Jesus. We proclaim Jesus. We're saying to the world, listen, listen y'all, here's the answer to the test. Now you have to make a choice. You got to make a choice. It's up, up to you what you decide to do with all that. Now, not only is Jesus the way, but he's... The truth. Why, how is he the truth? I kind of already got here. He's the truth because he tells us the truth about ourselves. What, what, what's the truth about ourselves? Two things. I already said it. We are glorious beings. Don't be afraid. That ain't prideful. You are glorious. You are made in the image of God. My whole dissertation is about how dope people are. It's my whole dissertation. People are dope. Even when they have severe cognitive disabilities. Even when they don't function in a neurotypical way, people are glorious. That's what I'm writing about. It's a great, great thing to be writing and researching about. I don't want to, sometimes I feel like we jump to sin too quick. I mean, we're going to get there, sin is there, but we can't forget how wonderful human beings are. Human beings are so awesome that God became one. Ooh, man. Don't get uncomfortable with that. That's like the whole point of Christianity, the incarnation. That's why Islam is like, oh, wow, that's too much. You're saying that God became a man? That's why Judaism says, ah, Christianity, too much. You're saying that God became a man? That's exactly what we're saying. Human beings are so glorious that they bear the image of God. That's why Jesus Christ could become a human and didn't become a horse because they don't bear his image. 
Jesus Christ, the image of God, became a man made in the image of God as the image of God, the glorious picture of the Most High God. We are glorious beings. That's the truth about human beings. This is why only Christianity has the bones to undergird a society that actually honors human life. Because any other worldview that begins to subjectivize and, and, and make uh, truth relative or subjectivize truth, oh man, human life is getting subjectivized real quick. Like, don't think that the world has always valued human life. That's a Judeo-Christian value. That's a Genesis 1, 26 through 27 value, and that's like straight-up world history. So people are like, oh, what does Christianity do to the world? It's, it's help people to realize that you just shouldn't wholesale slaughter people now. People haven't always listened. But the Christian ethic has permeated our world. We are glorious. But the truth about human, human beings is that we're also sinful, that we also blow it, that we also miss the mark. Now, some people don't like this. Like, and some people, in fact, some people recoil from the idea that human beings sin, that we make mistakes, that we miss the mark. But I don't think we should because I think it's one of the, um, one of the few Christian asser, uh, assertions that can be empirically tested. Like, just keep living. Like, like you, you know, like, we can, you can call it sin, you can call it messing up, you can call it whatever, whatever you want. Every, everybody can actually resonate with, um, you know, Brother Paul in Romans 7. Like, you ain't even got to be a Christian. Paul says this in Romans 7. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want. But the very thing I hate, that's what I do. So no longer is I, it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. That is every human being since Daddy Adam, except for one guy from Nazareth one time. That's everybody else. That's you, that's me. This idea that there's something broken about us. Now, we're not fully broken. We're not only broken. We're glorious. We're beautiful. But man, there's something up with us. And there's something up with the world that 300 and some people could just die in Haiti because of an earthquake. There's something absurd about that. There's something absurd about kids who die in random acts of violence and gunfire. There's something absurd about walking through the children's wing at Mercy Hospital and seeing babies dying of cancer. There's something absurd about it. What Jesus comes and says is that, yes, there's something absurd. It's called sin. It's called evil. I didn't make it like this. It's permeating you and all of creation, but he not only leaves us with the absurdity, he gives us a promise that I'm going to make it all right. That I'm going to wipe away every tear from your eye. Whatever you are going through, whatever you are experiencing, that I and only I, the way, the truth, and the life can wipe away every tear. Even if I don't do it on this side, I promise you, and I got it from the grave to let you know that I'm trustworthy, that I'm going to wipe away all the suffering from the world because this is not the way it is supposed to be. This is who Jesus is, but... What I love about this, he says I'm the way, says I'm the truth. He teaches us that he, he teaches us this truth about who we are as human beings, teaches us the truth about the world, but he also teaches us the truth about God. I like Jesus. I really do. I like him a lot because he does not present God as an impersonal deity that can't be known. That is the God of the agnostics. That is the God of the deists who says that God wound up time and created, if there is a God, he wound it up like a clock and shut it on the shelf and he is off having himself a great time. He's on the golf course because he is not caring for this creation. Look how absurd this world is. 
That is decidedly not the God of the Bible. Like what Jesus says is that no, God loves you so much to quote Eric Mason that he tucked in his Shekinah so that he can scoot up closer to you. Oh, I like that God better. I just like that God better. The God who loves me so much that he is willing to become like me, to come close to me. God, Jesus reveals us to a God that is not far from us, that is not hateful towards us, that a God, but a God who is mighty to save. Jesus tells us the truth about God. And the truth about God is this, because we got the Torah, and the Torah is good. Now, the Torah is good stuff. Problem is, is that sin thing, right? It just kept messing up the Torah. And like we was trying to wear our tassels, keep the 613 laws, not eat catfish. Then y'all sinners came up with bacon, messed it all up, all this stuff. Couldn't quite keep it. And so God comes because he didn't want us to think, listen, sacrifice is not what I wanted. Just law keeping is not what I wanted. What I wanted is a relationship with you. So Jesus comes to us and brings the, and in Christ, not that it wasn't present in the Torah, but it's just made more explicit in Christ. John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Again, he gives his son to draw us back to himself, not because he is hateful, but because he is loving. The Bible says that he doesn't desire for any to perish, but that all would come to salvation. All seven billion people that I named, I didn't even get to everybody. I just picked the big three. All of them, God is saying, my desire is not that they should perish. Now, we're glorious, made in his image. We got a choice. They can re we can reject him. People rejecting him every day. But he's calling us to himself. So we see that Jesus is the way. He's the path back to God in the midst of a broken world. We see that he's the truth. He tells us the truth about God, about ourselves, and about the world. But lastly, we see that he is life. Here's what Jesus says in his Gospel of John. Like, if you're wondering about Jesus and all this stuff, um, you know, read the Gospel of John. It tells you a lot about who he is. Jesus says, as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Says the Father has life in himself, I got life in myself. That's because he's God in the flesh. You only get to have like life in yourself if you're God. Only, that's like one of those God things, you know what I mean? So when my kids ask me, why can't I stay up late? Because I'm dad, I can do that. You can't do that. This is, this is a God thing. Only, only, only God gets to give life to stuff. He says, I give life to whoever I want. I give life to whoever calls on me. Here's what 1 John 5, 11 says. It says, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. That life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. God gives eternal life. Is that going to heaven when you die? You betcha. Heck yeah, I want to go to heaven when I die. Like sometimes I feel like Christians be scared to talk about heaven nowadays. Shoot, I'm going to heaven. Pie in the sky. I like pie, too. That's fine. <laughs> Heck yeah, I'm going to heaven. Yes, this is life eternal, but eternal life isn't just going to heaven when you die. Here's that, but my God is so much more. Eternal life is qualitatively different life. That means that the life we have now is not eternal. It's finite. The life that those who are agnostic, those who are atheists, those who are pure naturalists hold to is that you only had this life now. 
I told you made in the image of God. That gives you freedom. That gives you choice. By all means, that's your choice. Jesus says, I want to give you something better than that. I want to give you the life that originated in the zoetic life and the fellowship that flows from the loving fellowship of the Trinity that has its origins not in this world, but has its origins in heaven. The Holy Spirit that will become in you a well of living water that will flow out of you. Life that will spring up not only now, but forevermore. Jesus isn't trying to rain on your parade. Jesus isn't just trying to make sure you do not have a good time this weekend. Jesus is trying to give you better life than you could ever imagine. Ah, oh, man, yes, I know it's a broken world. Yes, I know it's a fallen world. Things happen that are unfortunate. Yes, I know you disappoint yourself. Yes, I know you missed the mark. Yes, I know you mess up. But guess what? This Jesus Christ is trying to give you the greatest gift in the history of humanity. His declaration that he is the way, the truth, and the life is not something that is just meant like, hey, I want to make sure those Muslims don't get in. It's the complete, total opposite. All the Muslims come in. Like everybody, like everybody, white, black, Republican, Democrat, short, fat, muscles, no muscles, everybody come in. That is what Jesus is saying. It is the opposite of being restrictive. He says, I want you to come in. Now, yeah, is there one way? Absolutely. I want to be clear. Jesus is that way. Jesus says it's only me. But he ain't being secretive about it. He is wide open. You can come into Jesus every which way. Come from whatever your background is. Come from whatever nationality. Come from whatever your political, religious persuasion. Come from where you are. But just make sure you come to Jesus. It's a narrow way. He's real clear. It's a narrow way that leads to eternal life. But man, it's a good way. It's full of joy. It's full of life. It's full of rejoicing. You get this great family. I love being a Christian because I got family everywhere. Everywhere. I, and I fellowship with everybody. Baptists, Pentecostals. I even hang out with my Roman Catholic brothers, my Eastern brother. I've got family all over the place. You get this great community of people that sometimes get weird on the internet, but are still great. <laughs> so this is the call. Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. My appeal to you today, if you're on the fence, if you're trying to, like, man, should I consider Jesus? If you're not a Christian, I don't even want to like rush you to make a decision today. Listen, God is patient. I'm patient. What I do want to challenge you with, though, I would, I would that you would take this one challenge for me. Or a couple things, but like one, I would want you to say, please don't assume that Jesus wants to ruin your life. He, I promise you he doesn't. My life was the opposite of ruin. My life took on a totally different life and flavor. I can tell you all about it. We can have coffee one day. But I want to like really encourage you, actually investigate the claims of Jesus. Are they true? Like, did this guy from Nazareth really live a perfect life, die a death on a Roman cross? For, for, for me, like for those of us who sin, did he really do that? And most importantly, did he resurrect three days later? I think if he died for three days and got back up, you got to take what that guy says pretty seriously. And so investigate. For those of us who are believers, who are Christians, who are hearing this, I want to encourage you, don't, don't, I know we can be caught, like nowadays, man, I, you know, I, we can be called all kinds of things, narrow-minded, you know, stupid, uh, you know, bigots, people view, you know, view, particularly Christians who hold 
to a high view of scripture and traditional biblical ethics and things of that nature, you know, we can be considered like, we're like, can be public enemy number one at times. Like, it just feels like, man, like, you know, you're just narrow-minded, you hate people, you're hurtful to people. Um, I wanna encourage you to take courage. On my way in, um, I was listening to this song uh, by uh, uh, old, like it's an old gospel song. Um, and in the song, this uh, artist, he gave a testimony of an old lady who used to ask him every Sunday, you yet holding on? She asked him every Sunday. He was a young Christian. Every Sunday, he, like, she thought I was gonna backslide between Sundays. Every Sunday she'd ask me, are you yet holding on? I just wanna encourage you, keep holding on. Even in spite of what the culture say, now listen, don't, I'm here, don't hear what I'm not saying. I don't mean just go be a jerk and call yourself persecuted. Don't do that. Um, don't be a jerk. Jesus wasn't a jerk, okay? Uh, but hold the line, continue to affirm Christ, and stand on the truth. It is a loving thing to proclaim this glorious, loving gospel to men and women who are dying every day, to invite them into this beautiful eternal life that has been given us through Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much that you are good. Thank you so much that you told us, God, you gave us the answer to the test. God, you said, you are the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. God, it's a narrow way, but you gave us the key. You are the key. Father, for those of us who are followers of you, God, let us not allow the pressures of society and those who would uh, write us off as ignorant or narrow-minded or whatever the case may be. Uh, God, I pray that we will not allow those things or those sentiments to discourage us from following after you. Father, I pray that we would continue to lean on you. God, let us continue to drink, drink deeply of the well of the Holy Spirit. God, you are the way, the truth of the life, God, and you have given us joy, God. God, it is really dope to be a Christian. It is good to know you, God. Like, God, let us live a life of joy before this world, even in spite of ways that we may suffer and may have yet to suffer. Father, I pray for those who don't know you, who are considering Christianity. God, I just pray that you would continue to draw them to yourself. God, it's not by accident that they're hearing this. Father, I pray that you would continue to draw them in, draw them to yourself. God, I pray that you would allow them to have the integrity and have the willingness, God, to just actually examine your claims. God, and if they examine your claims and examine your life and examine your history and find, that, find it to be wanting, by all means, allow them to go their own way. But Father, if they see that you really are who you said you are, that you really have done what you said that you have done, and you really are the Savior of the world, God in the flesh, who gave his life on the cross to redeem us and bring us back to God. God, if that is true, then, Father, I pray that they would turn and follow you. God, I pray for this church. Thank you for refuge. Thank you for Pastor Trey. Thank you for the elders, the members, the officers here. Thank you for this witness here in St. Charles uh, County, St. Charles, of your glorious gospel, of your grace, of your redeeming power. Thank you, Lord Jesus, in Jesus' name. Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.